Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm your host, Joachim Axel. Episode 56, take two. Because I didn't like how I was sounding in take one. So after 30 seconds, I just said no. And I started over. And I can do that because this space, you know, this is my this is my safe space and I can do whatever I want here and it's all right. Um, oh, and that is not to say that I'm going to like take two, but we're going to go with it. You know, everything is in a state of disrepair. Our bodies are falling apart. This soundproofing square in the studio is falling down. And I had to nail it back up and I could no longer find my black nails. So now there's a golden nail sticking out of it. And that's okay, you know. Our bodies are falling apart. The entire world is in a state of, you know, that's just, that's just what it is. Should this mic be a little bit more like there? Yeah, that seems good. Our bodies in the studios, everything's falling apart. Today we're doing four different waters, so we're going to start with the water. I haven't had any caffeine today. Podcast is, has... For some reason, I didn't intend for this. The podcast has been turning into this end-of-day thing, this evening thing. I record episodes in the evening, and I'm, that's not what we're doing today. Today I woke up. Oh, my God, this is so dirty. Oh, this can is so dirty. Do I have to pause and clean this? Oh. No, everything for the everything for the show. The show must go on. Ah, no, I can't. I can't. The show must not go on. Okay, edit. We're pausing. I have to rinse this can. And we're back. Okay, so, um, I'm excited about this. I brought this from Sweden. I have mentioned Ramlösa, which is the most iconic Swedish sparkling water brand. I've mentioned it many times on the podcast. It is, it is probably the first sparkling water I ever had. <clears throat> I went to Sweden two months ago. I bought a bunch of Swedish sparkling water. I brought this back. Now, this is something I've never had before because now, you know, because this is the modern world and everything has to be so complicated. There, it's no longer just. There's plain, there's lime, there's lemon. Because that's what it used to be. Now instead, there's all different kinds of things. So this is Romlösa vitamin. Function water with extract from goji and acerola. Acerola, I have no idea what it is. It might be a totally different word in English. Um, but that's what it's in Swedish. Acerola. Flavored with granatepple. Now, you know, for a long time, I... I'd heard of granatepple in Swedish, and I'd heard of pomegranate in English, and they sound completely different until you realize that pomegranate is really just French. I'd say French for palm just means apple, and we all kind of know that. And granite means grenade. 
because that's what it is in Swedish. Grenade apple. Pomme de granat. You know? Grenade apple. So, um, yeah, we're going to try this. It's a weird pink can. Goji berry and acerola. I haven't had any caffeine today, and we got all these caffeinated sparkling waters. Oh, my God, I'm realizing that it doesn't actually say caffeine on it. That's fine. Um, hmm. It strikes me that maybe I don't like pomegranate so much. Maybe I don't think pomegranate is so good. Because I've had a lot of pomegranate drinks, and I always feel like, oh, this is such a bad take on pomegranate. But now I'm drinking this, and it's actually really fresh, and it's very much like... It just tastes like real pomegranate, and I don't particularly care for it. So, maybe I don't love pomegranate, but... Yeah. God, I hate this episode so far. It's good, though. It's 8 out of 10. So, I have to talk about something today... And I don't want to talk about it. And I, I, as I was walking up the stairs, I was like, I hope that I can talk about something else first. Oh, God, I hate this episode. I was hoping that I could talk about something else first so that because I don't want anyone to hear this. Wow, this is like not funny to me. It's weird. I was hoping for this to be funny to me. Um, yeah. So, it's a story with a theme of kind of like, it's like a sort of relapse story. And um, it's, in very basic terms, it's a story of how I was already having very elevated anxiety and then things kept happening over and over maybe three different things happened and they all individually raised my anxiety even more to a point where I didn't even really know that it could go all the way up there and then basically I got I don't know I mean I don't know what happened I'll tell you what happened the background, I feel like this chair is making so much noise. The background in very simple terms is that I have a restaurant job now. Look, the thing that makes me so disappointed about this thing and this like very close call with, I don't know if it's a close call, this relapse thing is like nothing is wrong. That's what that's why I'm, that's what makes me really disappointed. Like, there's nothing I can point to that's actually wrong. And all throughout this sequence of events, I will tell you because I'm aware of it that on the one hand, in reality, everything is fine. And then my emotional response is panic. And so in reality, it's like I started this company. The company is growing gangbusters, is going very well. You know, I was like, I want a restaurant job. I looked for restaurant jobs. It wasn't hard at all for me to get a restaurant job. 
And yeah, there's different things going on, but, but, um, I got this restaurant job and it's, that's part of why my baseline of anxiety was elevated because it is stressful in the beginning. I just, I just find it stressful. Restaurant work is stressful. And I find it stressful. I saw this funny meme on the internet, this funny picture, which is a photo from a staff bathroom in a restaurant that says, um, employees must stop crying before returning to work. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. Employees must stop crying before returning to work because, um, I don't know. You know, people cry a lot. People cry. People cry when they work in restaurants. Women cry. <clears throat> um, so I got this job, and I think one of the things that's um, that I struggle with, especially in the beginning, or pretty much only in the beginning, is like that being a service staff member at a restaurant. I feel like everything I'm saying is so boring, but yeah, I mean, this is not entertainment. I have to get rid of this notion that this is entertainment. This is not entertainment. You know, when I upload an episode of the podcast every week, it's like, click the old upload button, and then it asks me what the category is. And I always have to scroll down, and it's like, the top one is always like comedy, and I'm like, <laughs> it's not actually funny, though. It's never really, it's never really funny. And then it's like education, nah. And then I just get to the bottom and none of them applied. So I just pick the bottom one and the bottom one is life sciences. Sometimes I pick food, but you know, that's just because the place where I choose to freak out about everything is where we serve food. <laughs> it's not about the food. <laughs> okay. So, um, one thing that I've struggled with in the beginning at a restaurant that I think most people struggle with is that being a good service member at a restaurant is that what you are doing is that you are, you're supposed to feel at home and you're supposed, you're supposed to know how to do hospitality. But the home part is a feeling that can be hard to fake. And Six months in or 12 months in, it's easy for anyone. Like almost anyone can be a great server if you worked at the same restaurant for like three years because you're gonna feel comfortable and you're gonna have the answer to all the questions. And then beyond that, it's just learning how to a little bit connect with people and a little bit how to do proper steps of service. And, and any almost anyone can learn that, you know? The thing that's difficult is to take that feeling of being at home because you have to feel like you're at home and then you have to, someone who walks in who's never been in this building before, you have to make them feel like they are at home with you. Like they are also comfortable. You have to make them comfortable. And it's hard to make the feeling completely plug and play where you wander into a, a building that you've never been in before and you talk to them and explain why they should hire you. And then they say, okay, you're hired. And then you walk in the next day. And then the next day, your second day in the building, you have to just act like you are completely at home there. 
it's a very unnatural thing to do because the natural thing is for it to, like whatever job you have, six months in, like you work in an office, six months in, you're comfortable in that office normally, you know? Six months in, you got all your desk drawers, you know, set up with like exactly the snacks you want and the stationery you want. And everything is like organized and you're just like, you're just at home. And you know the spots that you like to go to and you know the spot in the stairwell where you like to go and smoke a cigarette, you know? You know the bathroom that's like really clean because no one goes there with like carpeting so you can sleep on the floor in that bathroom. Like you're comfortable, you know what I'm saying? Three years into a job, anyone can be comfortable. But day one, it's very emotionally taxing to project complete comfort and complete confidence and to take your level of your feeling of comfort and to extend that onto a new person. Because it does take a little bit of maturity or something to invite someone into your home and to look at them and to try to understand what their needs are and to try to meet them where they are and to try to be like, what can I get you, man? Like, just if they're, if they seem stressed out, tell them to not be stressed out and tell them to just take a seat on the couch and you'll get them whatever. And you can just, just make yourself at home. And each different guests in your home need different things to feel completely comfortable. Some people want formality, you know, and that's okay. And then you can meet them there, you know, meet them wherever they want to be met. And You know, it doesn't have to be difficult and I make it difficult because I expect too much and I'm like, I just have the wrong attitude about everything. So I make it difficult. I was in a meeting today and this guy said, said, alcoholics are lazy perfectionists. And that really struck a chord with me because it's like, I'm such a perfectionist and I'm so lazy. I'm just this guy who doesn't do it, you know, and then expects it to be perfect. Um, doesn't do it. Ugh, I need to be nicer to our friend Joachim. Um, yeah. The thing is that I'm a perfectionist and I, I get a new restaurant job and I walk in on my first day and I expect to be able to do it perfectly on the first day. That's the problem. And that's my problem and that's how I live life and it sucks. And then I start this job and I just feel anxious about it. And God, I feel so vulnerable right now. Um, And the crazy thing is that at every stage, everyone there is like so nice and everyone there is like professional and everyone there is like super encouraging and super supportive and just telling me that everything is great and that I'm doing a great job and that it's all going to be great. And it's like there's nothing that I can point to in reality that implies that I should feel super anxious, but my emotions don't care about that. So I have this, every day before going in, I feel more, I feel more anxious than normal. And um, so then on Tuesday, it's maybe my fourth or fifth day going in there, whatever, something like that. And 
everything's been going real good. I've been taking it real seriously. I've been sitting at home on my computer making little flashcards and I've, you know, learned things about all the different types of liquor and I've memorized all of our house cocktails and all of the recipes and figured out what the palate is for all the cocktails and memorized all the ingredients and the allergies for all the different dishes and, you know, just a person taking it seriously and sort of also enjoying it, enjoying nerding out on food. It's like, it's, it's sort of like upscale Mexican food. And I've, I'm not super familiar with Mexican food. I, I really like Mexican breakfast foods, your huevos rancheros and your chilaquiles and just, you know, a nice breakfast burrito. Not that that's really Mexican food, but uh, yeah. Um, I'm really, I like that stuff, but other stuff, different ways of smoking and preparing and salting different meats. And, you know, I'm not super familiar with the different kinds of sauces, different types of mole. I'm not super familiar, but I'm interested in it. And, and I've been nerding out on it and it's interesting to me. Where am I going with this? On Tuesday, I go in and it's so hard for me to talk about this because I, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone and I don't want to overshare about a restaurant or anyone there because, especially because it's like a, it's like a company that's a little bit concerned about their, their social media presence, their whole marketing. So I don't want to like, important that I don't say anything bad about anything there but I should because it's all good over there like it's a good it's a good restaurant it's a good hotel it's good but I'm anxious I go in and then um, I'm given a written test I hang out for 30 minutes an hour we get things going a little bit I'm expecting not a lot oh it's not actually I said it was Tuesday it was actually on Monday it's a Monday. I'm expecting it to just be like almost no guests in there. Super quiet. Nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to like do what I've been doing, you know, ring some things in the computer, maybe take a couple of orders, just get a little bit more comfortable with it. Instead, my manager comes at me and he gives me this written test and he's like, this is completely new. It's fine if there's things you don't know on here because it's totally new and there might be just things that, you know, where the, inf the answer hasn't been available to you at all. And just overall, he's just been super supportive the whole time. So there's nothing in reality pointing to this test being super important. I've only been in there four or five days. If I sort of like really fail this test and have to take it again a week from now, like whatever, that's fine. But my emotional response is I sit down with this test and it just brings up something bad and it just made me very 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 anxious and it gave me so much anxiety that I had a stomach ache which I don't know I mean honestly I think it's if you go really far back I've always been actually really good at written tests it's a kind of my thing like I don't know, like in Sweden in high school, they had this thing. It's like the Swedish version of the SATs. Högskoleprovet. Just a higher education test is what that means. 
And um, like in my first year of high school, I did this test and I scored like in the top 2% or 1% or something. And the te- the way the test works is like <laughs> that it that it's you apply for university using either your grades in high school or this test. And when I got that good of a test score, I was like, oh, so my grades aren't going to matter. And it really fucked me up because then for three years of high school, I paid less attention than I could have. I mean, it was good and bad because like it made it so I didn't care at all about grades. I just took classes I was interested in and I took many, many classes and I just tried to barely pass them all. And I got exposed to a lot of information and I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia. And maybe it's all right, you know, but, but, um, I'm just saying, like, I think I'm actually good at, like, different brains work with different learning styles, even though I actually read that learning styles is a myth. And teachers hate it when parents bring up the idea of learning styles because teachers are closer to the literature and academia and like what the newest science says and the newest science is that learning styles are like not a thing. So teachers really hate when parents bring that up. But but still, there are different kinds of brains and you maybe were good at different things and bad at different things. And, and I just think I happen to be good at written tests. So I shouldn't be super nervous about it. But But the thing that it brought up for me was like this test that I did at the sushi place the fancy sushi place I worked at. And it's just like, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, how that just was, I mean, it was a little bit of a bad time in my life, I guess. It was the last period of my life before I quit drinking. I quit drinking the day I quit that restaurant. That restaurant was place where we kind of got wasted at work and again don't want to talk about that too much because i don't want to say anything bad about anyone or anything that's a very good restaurant too but but you know there was some there was some getting wasted at work and i got to a place where i felt like i couldn't stop drinking without removing myself from that context because there were expectations that i would participate in drinking while being there and being with people there. And and it was just like a very stressful space. And there, it's interesting to compare with the idea that I was talking about, about feeling at home. Like, I think I really struggled with feeling at home there. And you walk into a space that's like super fancy and you don't feel fancy in your heart. And then it can be difficult to project because feeling at home is a different way of saying confidence, right? To feel confident and to project confidence is to just project that you're feeling at home. I mean, somehow they, they go a little bit hand in hand because what you're, what you're projecting in a restaurant is not just yourself as an isolated individual. You're projecting this whole experience, which takes place in a space. So it's the whole ritual of the space and you coexisting, you know, and, you know, putting that glass of wine in front of someone, it's, it's a space and it's a physical object and you and they all have to just coexist in this sort of like confident, convincing story that you're trying to bring someone along for. 
What was I saying? I was saying that there, when I started working there, I was training for longer than I should have because I, I'm stupid and, and I didn't know how to study for it. And because I'd never had to do that before. I'd never had to study for a serious restaurant before. And the studying ended with a written test. And the written test was very much like everyone explained that it was extremely important. And then if you don't get more than like 95% correct on this 15 pages of written questions, you don't get to, you don't, you're not doing it yet. And the, the, the thing about it is like when you're training, you're making almost no money. You're making minimum wage and, and then after that you make three times more. So you want to get beyond the training stage. Um, and I think honestly, I'm like a little bit haunted by the training process at that sushi place. <laughs> I'm such a loser. It's so funny. <laughs> oh God, it doesn't matter. But for, it doesn't matter. But for some reason, it traumatized the fuck out of me. And then on Monday, I get this written test and it just brought some of that up. And I just sat there in a room with this written piece of paper. And then there were things that I just didn't know yet. I just didn't know 95%. Like I didn't get 95% on this test because there were things that I didn't know. And like, that's okay. And I'm actually, you know, I'm just learning them now. <sighs> the point is just that um, I got this massive stomach ache and I spend an hour on this test and then I, I walk around and then again, the next thing that happened that raised my anxiety one more notch is even more sensitive and even more something that I feel like it's very difficult for me to talk about. God, I hope no one ever listens to this episode of the podcast, but I'll just say it in very plain, neutral terms what happened. I finished the test and then I'm walking around and I hear people saying the same thing around the corner of where I'm at. People keep saying that the owner of the restaurant group is coming in and it's a big restaurant group and it's this wealthy lady and there's this, not even talking about her, just talking about in general terms, in fine dining, there's generally a owner and the owner is generally crazy, honestly. And the general, I mean, I think at this point, I can say that Eric Bunn, <laughs> the owner of, of Babar, the owner of the Saigon Sibling Restaurant Group, I think I, I think I'm out of the woods enough to say that that man is a little bit crazy <laughs> and like abusive and, and weird. And there's, you know, plenty of news articles in local Seattle, you know, magazines about how he is like abuses the fuck out of people in public in front of journalists and, and that sucks and everything. And um, I always thought that I was impervious to that when I was at Babar. And, and, you know, on a long enough timeline, everyone. On a long enough timeline, everyone dies. Or everyone gets abused by their boss. But so in general terms, it's like that. In fine dining, there's a crazy owner. And in fine dining, everyone is always scared of the owner. Now. I will say, with the information available to me right now, that's absolutely not the case at the place I'm at now. It sounds like I'm just being diplomatic here, but...
but the owner is actually super nice. She's a super nice lady. And everyone actually said that, that she's a sweetheart. But still, it is your job, and she is the most important person, so everyone gets stressed out. So I keep hearing people, I keep hearing this echo from not even people saying it to me, just someone in the other room keeps saying that the owner is coming in, and then I walk over here, and someone in this other room around the corner there says the same thing, and then they say it again, and it's it's this it's this sort of like, <laughs> it's like the building is is freaking out that the owner is coming in somewhat unannounced. And then um, because there's a fear response, which is unwarranted because she's super nice, because there's a fear response, there's one server in there and me, and I'm training. And then the server... I'm going to go ahead and say, because he was afraid, he was like, oh yeah, Joachim should do it. Which is, when I first when I first heard him say that, that's so funny and ridiculous to me. Because it's like, if the owner is coming in and the idea is that we should give the owner perfect service and stuff, like, should you really have the guy who's only been in there four days serve the person? Like, that makes no sense at all. You're just scared. But it does make sense because... She's just a friend and she's just, we're all on the same team and she wants to meet new people and she wants to see what the new people's serving style is. So it does make sense. So she comes in, the manager brings me over, introduces me, says that I'm great. And I talk to her for a bit and she's super nice and she like is interested in me and, and like keeps asking me questions and I'm like, yeah, I'm from Sweden. And I tell her that I lived in China for 10 years because she asked, you know, <laughs> for once it wasn't me. Like, <laughs> it wasn't someone being like, hey, do you want French fries? And me, I'm like, eh, actually, I lived in Sweden. Like, I mean, actually, I'm, yeah. Um, For once, it wasn't me forcing that information on someone else. It was just, she asked, let me just see if we're even recording. Okay, so just in very briefly, the thing that happened is pretty much just that it didn't go perfectly. There are details about it that weren't exactly how I wanted them to be. Like her and her husband, they order these appetizers and they want to share them. So before you bring over these appetizers that they're going to share, you want to bring them some share plates. You don't want to bring the share plates afterwards. Just like how if you bring someone a steak, you don't want to bring them the steak knife after they've gotten their steak. Like what's worse than getting your food and not having cutlery for the food that you're trying to enjoy? You know, she ordered a beer. The beer didn't show up. She ordered a glass of wine. It didn't show up quick enough. She had, I had ordered it, but didn't show up quick enough. She had to ask someone else for it. And then I bring it over and I made it seem like, yeah, I didn't think it went perfectly. She was super nice at every stage. She like pop quizzed me a little bit and I did not know the answers to the questions that she was asking me, which made me, which is what really brought me to the next level of anxiety. Like she asked me 
things. You know, she asked me like about the white wines and I just didn't have the answer. And I have the answer now and it's all good, you know, but she was very nice about it. And, and then my emotions did not care that she was very nice about it. And, um, yeah. And then, you know, some other things happened. I didn't think things were, went perfectly. It was my first day, basically, not just training and looking at things, but doing it myself. And it's ridiculous to expect that everything would go perfectly, but that's how my mind imagines things. So um, the point is that the point is the discrepancy between reality and my emotional response. Because, you know, she left and she walked into the kitchen first and like said hello to everyone. And, you know, it was just great. I had a long conversation with her at the end where I talked about like where I had worked before and, you know, what we were hoping to do with the restaurant and how it's going to be really great. And she talked about things that we want to do. And we just like kind of clicked and it was really nice. We had a, sort of a real grown up conversation. And then, she went out, stepped outside and talked to the manager for a bit. And then he came in and, and he said that she had said that she loved me. And he says, that's very special because she never says that about anyone. She usually has like pointers, you know, things that they should work on. She usually has a little bit of feedback, but she didn't have any feedback for me. She just said that she loved me. And even though that's the reality my emo my anxiety level <clears throat> went from a very high baseline to a much 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 higher level when i was working on the written test to a much 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 higher level when i didn't think that things went perfectly with her and nowhere in that emotional response did my emotions care that in reality these good things were said to me It's like the, it's the problem of integration and disintegration because it's also like, I don't think anyone there knew that I was stressed out more than just a sort of regular level stressed out because And I've mentioned this before on the podcast that I just sort of like, I'm always anxious. So I've just learned how to seem normal. Like people just think I seem normal when in reality I'm really anxious. And I remember always being a kid and always just feeling really anxious for no reason. And my mom being like, bro, you're not anxious. Like, what are you talking about? You're not. Like, and, and then sometimes stressful things would happen and I would just be the same as I always was because I was always stressed out. And my mom would be like, dude, how are you so calm? Like, things aren't going well. How are you so calm? And I'd be like, bro, I'm not actually calm at all. I'm what I always am, which is falling apart. Like I'm always super anxious. But so, yeah. So what I say to people sometimes is that I'm always at 100% anxiety. So I've just learned how to act normal when I'm at 100% anxiety. And, and, um, And 
And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think I'm just, I think the idea of 100% is not true because you can always get more anxious. I'm learning. Um, it's just so disappointing that it's not because like, look, if I'm driving around and I like hit someone with my car and I get to that level of anxiety, it's like, okay, fine. You know, you fucking hit someone with your car. They might die, you know, like, okay. There's a certain coherent thing that's happening there. But for me to feel like that level of anxiety when in reality everything is just fine, it's just so like, it's just so fucking disappointing. Anyway, I'm going to drink another water. I haven't had any caffeine today. I can't believe I did 30 minutes of this podcast without having caffeine. Hopefully the next 30 minutes is going to be better. So this is Cascade Ice which is, I believe, a sort of um, subcategory of Talking Rain. Unique beverage company, certified organic by Washington State Department of Agriculture. Maybe this is not Talking Rain. Nah, this is Talking Rain. Cascade Ice. Yeah, it's, it's related somehow. So pomegranate, 160 milligrams of caffeine. Hopefully this is good and I'll drink the entire one. Natural pomegranate mango flavored caffeinated sparkling water with other natural flavors. I love how there's always some mysterious other flavor in here. Caffeine exclamation mark. We want it. <laughs> this is so Seattle. Like in Seattle, in Seattle, you can be real casual about your caffeine because you know that you just need to say the word caffeine and everyone is on the same page. Just mention caffeine and they'll love you. It can give us a jump start in the morning, pick us up in the afternoon, and keep us going in the evening. Bro, if you're drinking caffeine in the evening, log on to your fucking healthcare platform and send your doctor a message, bro. Oh. Thank God. It's not great, but it's good enough that I'll drink it, you know? And I get all this caffeine in my body. Is that okay? Is it too late for me to have a bunch of caffeine? Ooh, it's afternoon. Honestly, it actually tastes exactly like the Romlesa. No, Romlesa is more fresh. And this is more watery. Yeah. This is sparkling water. Yep, that's good. 7 out of 10. No, 6.5. I would never buy that again. I would never buy that for flavor. So, um, look, I think I said enough about what happened in there on Monday. But the thing that then happened is I got off work and I went and I sat in my car and I just could not feel the way I was feeling. And then I was just like, I can't feel like this. So I went to a store and I bought one can of Heineken because I was like, 
can't feel like this. This is too much. It doesn't matter that I have a meditation habit, you know? It doesn't matter that I just let my emotions pass through me and I just take note of them and I don't identify with thought and I don't identify with emotion. None of that matters anymore. When you feel bad enough, you just feel bad. And it's very simple, you know? Like, a bad feeling in your heart is like, you don't choose to interpret that as bad. It's just bad. And so I go to the store and I buy this Heineken and then I was thinking like I was going to just sit in the parking lot and just chug a Heineken, just like one Heineken. And then I realized that if I do that, then I'm like, and it wasn't, they don't sell small Heinekens anymore. Like this Heineken was not the size that they were when I was drinking. Like this is, this was a liter. This was a quart. It's a can. That's not a tall boy. It's like two tall boys in one can. It's just like this super thick, massive metal cylinder of beer. So, but that's what they had. It's that or a six pack. So I bought one of those and I just sat in the parking lot and I was like, should I just drink this in the parking lot right now? Cause I just can't feel like this. Like my stomach is really, really, really hurting from anxiety, which is something I haven't experienced since, um, last time, last time I experienced it was the one time I went to a strip club and got really stressed out, which is, explained in detail in season one of the podcast it's somewhere around episode 30 it's called sexual trauma or something it's one it's a is another extremely overly personal episode but um yeah but i realized that if i i sit in the parking lot and i chug this like beer and then drive home then i'm actually drunk driving which would be hilarious for me, a person where all my friends are like, yeah, he doesn't drink. For me to like get in trouble for drunk driving would be funny, but there's nothing that would say that I would get in trouble right away for that. But anyway, they do actually hang out. Like the highway patrol and the sheriff or whatever, they do hang out right there between the store I was at in my home, between Safeway and I, I didn't buy it at Safeway, but uh, yeah, so I didn't open it in the parking lot. I um, drove home and, and there was a certain calmness to just knowing that Actually, buying it calmed me down a lot because buying it made me feel like I do have the power and I do have options. And if, because I did feel like maybe I can survive another 30 minutes of feeling like this. But what if I can't? And if, if I can't, then at least I have this can here. And 
Maybe I don't have to drink it, but at least I have it. It's a little bit like how I've talked to people who take benzos and I've kind of talked to like doctors who prescribe benzos that like benzo is like this sort of emergency anti-anxiety thing where, which definitely if I had, if I had some benzos, it'd be a very good time to take a benzo. Um, but I don't, um, that the, the correct way to think about a benzo is more like an insurance policy and just think about having it in your pocket and don't take it. Like that's the best way to do benzos. Just keep them in your pocket and don't take them. Just know that you have that sort of like, I'll pull the red lever, pull the red handle in case of emergency, break the glass, grab the benzo. That option is there. And because that option is there, you are a little bit more resilient. So I felt a little bit like that, just having bought a can of Heineken. I felt a little bit like, I have the power here to like, I don't know. Fuck, this is so rambly, but what do you want it to be, bro? Oh. Mmm, caffeine. You know what? Let's drink another water. Let's do this bubbler. Um, bubbler antioxidant sparkling water that boosts, energizes, and restores balance. Natural caffeine. Pomegranate acai refresher. And they removed the last E in the word refresher. Because that's the thing with bubbler. In the word bubbler, they remove the E too. And all of the bubbler drinks have the E removed. They got nectar, they got mixer, they got twister, and in all of them, they the E is removed. And that's what we're doing. And that sucks. I'll tell you right now that that sucks. 450 micrograms of antioxidant vitamin A. Does that even make sense? What? Bubbler. Pomegranate acai. Acai is like really not something that tastes good. Acai is good because of the texture. So the idea that you make a sparkling water and you water and you flavor it with acai is very questionable. Dubious. I like was going to drink it and then I felt like saying the word dubious, so I quit mid-drink. 69 milligrams of caffeine per can. Yeah, that's not very good. It's way too sweet. Lots of sweetener. Stevia. We're working with stevia here. Yeah. Way too sweet. Super artificial. It tastes like a candy that I haven't tasted in decades. What candy does it taste like? Wow, there's definitely some artificial artificial flavoring agent in this that's super rare, but that existed in some candy in my childhood. And I don't know which one. 
Yeah. I don't know. That's a four out of 10. It doesn't taste like poop, but I'm not drinking it. <clears throat> so after buying the can of Heineken, I'm driving home and I call my friend, call up the old doctor and, um, and he's like, bro, I video call him while driving and he's like, bro, open the window and throw it out the window. And I'm like, I'm on the highway. I can't throw it out the window. It's massive and it's made of metal and it'll give someone a flat tire. And he's like, I don't care. Just throw it out the window. And I didn't. Now it's like, now we're getting to this point where like, how honest am I going to be about what happened? I don't, I haven't decided yet. I haven't decided yet. So I got, to the house. Actually, what I did is I went and bought a Heineken. I just had it in the car and then I hadn't had any food all day because I was too anxious before work to eat. So, and it's like 10.30 p.m. And so I drive to Taco Bell and Taco Bell in the window, they have this, the whole building looks dark, like they're closed, but in the window, there's this neon sign that just says drive through is open so i'm looking at it like it's totally dark but the it, the sign is on and it says drive through is open so i drive through that drive through and when i get to the part where you order it's all dark so i'm like this doesn't seem like it's actually true what that sign says and i'm speaking into the darkness into this screen that looks off and no one responds. So I pull around the corner and I get to this window where you're supposed to get your food and there's people in there. And then in this humiliating exchange, they tell me that they're closed. So I had to go to Jack in the Box, which is terrible. Terrible. And they didn't get me what I ordered. I ordered... A grilled chicken sandwich, and they got me a not chicken. Anyway, I get to the house eventually. And, um, and I don't know, I was talking to my buddy on the, on the video, and he was telling me how I needed to pour the beer out in front of him on the video and stuff. And, and it's like, I was feeling defiant. Also, at some at some point there, I was feeling defiant, but I'm going to be completely honest and I'm going to tell you what happened. And what happened is that I, um, I took this massive beer, it's like a liter, and I took a glass and I poured like one deciliter, you know, like half a cup into a glass, and then I poured the rest out, and then I drank about half of that glass. And then I poured it out. So I had like three mouthfuls of beer, which is technically a relapse in an AA perspective. It's interesting because I was feeling really bad. And I, but I wasn't feeling like three mouthfuls of beer was going to solve that. I was feeling like three mouthfuls of beer would be a placebo that would be helpful for me. Yeah. 
And in a way, I think, I mean, I think it was. And then, and then that was it. And that's a few days ago. And I didn't, it didn't make me spiral into an enormous relapse and it didn't do anything else, you know, and it was fine. I just had like three sips of beer and, um, what I wanted was a placebo thing where I could just sit and just feel it melt away based on the like mental idea that now I, at least I have a little bit of alcohol in my system and it like will just help me with this unbearable anxiety. And then on the other hand, it's like clearly, obviously this thing of like the idea with sobriety and stuff, it's a very black and white thing where, where the point is to have a really, really hard, rigid rule. And if you break, break the rule at all, you've broken the rule. There's no like, you only broke the rule a little bit. So in that sense, it's bad, you know, because I broke the rule. Fuck. I was at this meeting today and this guy said, he's talking about something. And then he goes, because the old man in the rocking chair is always waiting. That's what he said. The old man in the rocking chair is always waiting. And I did not know what the, what he was talking about. And then he kept talking and he was like, yeah, if I don't do, you know, if I'm not honest with myself, you know, if I don't take care of myself, if I don't work this program, if I don't maintain my meditation habit, you know, He's always there, you know, the old man in the rocking chair. He's always waiting. And then I sort of understood what he was talking about, you know. And that's the truth, you know. The old man in the rocking chair. He's always waiting. And I knew what that meant. Yep. I spoke to the devil in Miami and he told me everything was going to be all right. He told me everything was going to be fine. Um, so that's what happened to me, you know? I quit, I quit drinking like two, more than two years ago and, and, um, do a lot of things and I see that as very important and I mean I still knew though that the old man in the rocking chair he's always waiting he's out on the porch um yeah but um Yeah, you know, I heard this podcast interview with a guy who, the guy who wrote the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a um, famous, popular, best-selling book about maybe PTSD treatment, just therapy, just like how trauma manifests in your body, maybe is what it's about. Um, I remember seeing this book on the book on the bookshelf living with Marissa friend of the podcast 
Marissa is a big fan of this book, I believe. And in this interview, he said so many fascinating things. And some of these things really resonated with me. And one of the things was how language can really be a problem sometimes. Because we have this idea that if you just talk about it, you've fixed it. And that's only true sometimes. Sometimes you talk about it and that doesn't fix it. Sometimes you have like a mental health problem and then you figure it out and you say it out loud how it works and then that doesn't matter at all and the problem is still there. And it's like, wow. For some reason, I grew up believing that if you just figure it out with language, it's fixed. And I'm realizing that that's not true. And one of the things he talked about was these sort of like, he did this type of therapy where, where you're asked to remember traumatic things, but not interpret them and not talk about them. And in fact, not say anything. And you're sort of brought into a semi-hypnotic state and then you, um, um, just sit there with that maybe with your eyes closed, maybe sort of re-experiencing something with your eyes closed in a semi-hypnotized state. And it's important to not talk because once you start talking and once you start describing what's happening and once you start interpreting it with language, you have distanced yourself from it. I can't, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast already, but anyway, I think that's something that I'm very interested in because it's like, I've only ever tried talking about it. And this whole play by play of what led to me walking out on the porch and having the old man in the rocking chair give me a can of Heineken. I think everything I say about it is like a lie. As soon as we start talking, we're lying is what it feels like sometimes. And, um, yeah. I don't know. Should we drink another water? Water number four? Physique. Yeah. Man, have I not reviewed this already? Nah. It's just... I've reviewed a bunch of physiques and they all taste the same and they're all terrible. So they're protein sparkling water, which means that they have a weird viscous, thick, thick quality to this water. Cause there's a whey protein, whey isolate in this water, 90 calories per can. There's caffeine and protein in this water. Pomegranate flavor. Oh, just smelling it is like, Oh, it's making me gag. Oh, first of all, they're barely carbonated. Those are the laziest bubbles ever. And it's so thick and it's so gross. Okay, I'm not even going to have a second sip. That's one out of 10. Oh, it immediately coated an entire inside of my mouth with a weird metallic artificial. Oh, gross. 
Oh, zero out of ten. Zero out of ten. That's awful. So, um, I talked about this at length in episode 51 of how I um, found different substitutes for alcohol when I quit drinking. And uh, one of them was sort of like being infatuated with girls. It's something that makes me, gives me a sort of drug-like high. It's something I, I talked about this. Uh, there was a very comprehensive treatment of this on episode 51 of the podcast. And then I was sort of talking through it as I was doing that podcast. Like I had never, that was the most comprehensive session of thinking through it that I did on camera there. And um, somewhere in my mind after doing that, there's an expectation that now I know what it is. So now I will stop doing it. But it's like, maybe that's not true. And this week, I sort of like matched with this girl and um, we started saying some nice things to each other. And it's so hard because I think addictions can be... um, categorized into two very distinct buckets of addictions. One is all the stuff where you can go cold turkey and you can have a black and white rule of just saying no, completely no. And those are like the drugs and things like gambling and all these things that you can live without. And then there's these other things that are things that we cannot live without that we can still turn into an addiction like food, you know? sex addiction, all these things. Like you can have an unhealthy, addictive relationship with food. And if you do, you're fucked because you can't quit food. You have to work on your relationship with it. And that's, in a way, I believe that that is much harder than to just have a rule again. Like to just say, I'm not drinking again. I think it is much harder because because there's so much lying to, to yourself. Like you're you're you want to lie to yourself. That makes me want to read my favorite passage again. Hold on, let me let me get a thing. I was talking to the two doctors about this and I read them this passage and it's interesting because like I have these conversations in real life and when I have the conversations in real life, I I don't really get there sometimes. And then when I rehab the conversation with myself here <laughs> on the pod, <laughs> I feel like I, like now I know why I was saying that. Like now it makes sense to me. This passage is about the difference between the things we can give up completely and the things that we have to have a good relationship with. This is my favorite passage in the entire big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's funny and it's practical and it's like not fluffy at all. It's like this. Here are some of the methods we have tried of how to quit is what this is about. Here are some of the methods we have tried. 
Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it at the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing it off forever, with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums. <laughs> accepting voluntary commitment to asylums, we could increase the list ad infinitum. That's funny to me because it's like, I tried a lot of those things. <sighs> now my heart just sank. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm recording the pod, my heart just sinks in the middle of it. And it's like, <sighs> oh God. And that's okay. That passage is funny to me because it's like, I tried drinking only beer and I tried drinking only at home or not at home. And I tried things and then I tried the inverse of the thing, you know, taking a trip, not taking a trip. And um, the point of that is that it doesn't work like that. You can't come up, if you are enough of a problem drinker, you cannot come up with a compromise. There's no compromise. There's only quitting completely. And that's what's true. That's what turned out to be something that was a, help a helpful idea for me, you know? I tried to uh, compromise. For a long time, I, the doctor was like, bro, you got to do two drink maximum. That's what you're doing. So I did two drink maximum for a while, and then I just substituted it for getting wasted with other stuff at the same time. Um, but so this week I matched with this girl, and I was talking to this girl, and, um, and... It turned into this thing where I was acting a little bit crazy and she was acting a little bit crazy and we were kind of clicking and our crazies kind of clicked into each other and we started saying these like kind of drastic, strong things, which is not good because that's the problem because like when we exaggerate like that, it makes me feel really, it makes me feel a little bit high. And that's not good. And I thought that because I'd said it all out loud that it was going to be something that wouldn't be a problem. But the thing is that, like, the solution is not to not beyond there, you know? The solution is not to um, pretend like... The solution is not to, like, cut myself off from the world and to not try to meet, not trying to find a girlfriend or whatever. And that's how it is um, different from these things that we can give up. 
The problem is that you do it and then it, yeah, it gets a little bit crazy and then you don't realize until it's too late that, oh no, I did it again and it's crazy again. And, um, yeah. And then it's like, <clears throat> we were like talking very intensely, like for hours, just like messaging very intensely. And then, um, we were going to meet up and we talked a little bit on the phone and we were like talking about what we should do. We should just go get dinner or something. And, um, and then she like apologized a bunch, but it canceled. And then I felt this like feeling that was unreasonably strong. Yeah. Felt bad about it. I felt worse about it than I should have. Man, why am I doing this podcast, dude? This is so weird. Oh, fuck. It's like I had a three sips of beer on Monday and then I didn't tell my AA sponsor and I went to a meeting and I didn't tell anyone at the meeting. And, and instead I'm telling you guys. And that's not how it's supposed to go, you know? I just hope no one listens to this. And, um, I just hope no one listens to this. Uh, yeah. I was going to talk about this other thing that I heard about that the guy who wrote The Body Keeps the Score talked about, but I don't really know very much about it. I just think it's a fascinating thing that I sort of heard, read about where it's called EMDR therapy. And it's like, it's the same idea that I was saying before, how, how language can be the problem. And language just comes up with this conscious narrative. And sometimes language is not part of the solution. And then in this type of therapy, what you do is you are asked to recall a traumatic event, and then while recalling it, you are also, at the same time, the therapist does a physical thing with you, and the most common one is an eye movement thing, where they make you look from left to right, left to right, and it's something about, like, we don't know why it seems to work, but clinical studies suggest that maybe this works. It's a little bit controversial, but not super controversial. Um, it seems to work for PTSD. And then it's like, maybe some people are like, well, it just works because it's like an exposure therapy where you relive it over and over until it loses some of its power. And we know that that works. But this seems to work better. And... There's a hypothesis that it's that maybe one of the things is because when you make the human eye look from left to right, left to right quickly, or like semi quickly or whatever, you're triggering some like super ancient animal part of the brain 
of like how we're prey and we have to like look for predators. It's like super kooky. And that it unlocks some deep thing in the brain so that things can get rearranged. Because it's all about um, instead of having a connect, like you have a traumatic memory and instead of instead of having that be wired to be connected to this like extremely negative body response where you feel awful when the memory comes up instead rewire it so that it's connected to something more benign and then maybe a related concept is that you're also trying to take something subconscious and actually turn it into a real memory because sometimes maybe we're haunted by things that we don't actually remember. It's all we have is like this feeling that comes from the thing that happened to us and the body remembers, but you don't remember. And if you can bring it up into your conscious mind and turn it into a conscious memory, then you're like less haunted by it. Fascinating. Like, how would you even do that? And then, you know, there's the I thing, but there's also EMDR also does this other thing of like, you, um, have someone recall a traumatic memory and at the same time you like tap on their hand and just doing a physical thing like that confuses the mind enough to make everything a little bit movable, rewirable. It's crazy. Anyway, that'd be interesting to try, right? Not that I have like, I don't know that I have a lot of trauma. Um, I don't know. Is Javi here? Oh, I think Javi is here. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. That was Four Waters.